Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to the network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Buckley Dog Food. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients and the same applies to pet food. My dog, Sevi, who's a rescue, is a very picky eater and he will not eat crappy dog food. But he loves Buckley Dog Food because it's about quality ingredients. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or fillers, just fresh meat and whole ingredients. Go to buckleypet.com slash Chang and use the code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 20% off your first order. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. This is our 100th episode. Wild to think that we've done 100. I think technically it might be like 97 in real episodes or so, but we'll, we'll go just go with it. I never thought there would be uh, 100 episodes, so I'm incredibly grateful for the support. Always amazed at the listenership and the people that come up to me and say they listen and they're not in the food business. So, you know, my number one goal is always to talk to people in the restaurant business. But I think that it's been expanding and I'm grateful for a growing audience. Um, And it's something that I've been trying to get better at uh, as a listener and as someone that has conversations. I think that I've gotten better. Hopefully you agree. Wanted to give a big shout out to Bill Simmons uh, for giving me this opportunity and the whole team at Major Domo Media and uh, Isaac Lee, our producer, Chris Chen, Doc O'Connor, and Chris Yang have all been incredibly instrumental in making this happen. And uh, we continue to tweak and, and fuck around with what this podcast can be. I don't even know if it is a food podcast. Would you think, it, is it a food podcast? No, not really, right? Uh Wanted to have one announcement this week, Friday. So this will be released on Thursday, March 5th. Friday, March 6th is the release of Ugly Delicious Season 2, which we made with Morgan Neville and his Oscar-winning team of Tremolo Productions. And um, we filmed this all around the time last year, and we were sort of under the gun trying to get a lot of it done because we tried to get most of the filming done before my wife gave birth to Hugo. And we tried a few things out, which is why we came up with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I've always viewed breakfast, lunch, and dinner as sort of like the B side to the A side, which would be Ugly Delicious Season 2, because the topics of UD can get pretty intense and heavy. And we wanted to do something a little bit different, a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. And that's what 
BLD was and, and Netflix gave us that opportunity. So again, very grateful for that. But I'm incredibly proud of what Ugly Delicious season two came out to be to so many people that worked on it from, man, there's so many people when I think about the names, if I had to give like a speech, I'm not just drawing a blank. I have to write it all out and maybe I'll post it on social media or so. But from Dara to Jason to the, the whole team, it's been a real honor to get to work with them to make this. And it's something I think we're all incredibly proud of. Four episodes. The first episode is Kids Menu. And it's a, a look into my wife and I having a first child and what it's like to be a chef in this business, trying to raise kids, something that I'm still trying to figure out. We did an episode on steaks. Uh, I had this idea that maybe if we sort of had people that ate well-done steaks that would tell us a lot about their politics um, and who they are, and, and ultimately came to the conclusion that was an incredibly dumb, <laughs> dumb perspective. But uh, we had a lot of fun making that one too. And uh, I think we're going to try to do a post-opening diaries uh, later, but I would say that the best steak I've ever had in my life was from Lennox at the Fire Door in Sydney, Australia, and just a tremendous, tremendous steak and how it's I think grass-fed and then capped at around 100 or like eight weeks or so, and then aged in the fat for another like eight weeks or 120 days or something like that. So it really mellowed out the flavor of, of the beef, uh, the ribeye. Oh, no, it was a ribeye. Excuse me. It was a sirloin. Anyway, I don't like overage steaks, and this was something that I've never had before. It had the, the rich sort of glutamic acid-enhanced flavors that I love without it being like smelling like rot. And I just thought it was beautiful. And obviously, Lennox is one of the great chefs in the world, having spent a lot of time at Echabari in Spain. But we ate, we ate a lot of great steaks, and that episode was a lot of fun. We have an episode on what we're calling Don't Call It Curry, which is my complete, not just misunderstanding, I just didn't know, and I still don't know that much about the food of India and how much I wanted to learn about it and how it changed my views of the world and the cuisine of, uh, the great cuisine of, of India. And um, I thought it was probably one of the most instrumental moments in my life, finally getting to go to India and um, connecting the dots. And I don't want to say too much about it. And then one is like, as the meat turns, which is sort of a play on as the world turns. And um, it was a analysis or sort of going down the rabbit hole on about vertical spit cooking. Anyway, I'm talking too much about the episodes, but I just wanted to say, I think it was the best we could do. I'm really proud of it. And uh, we'll see what's next for Ugly Delicious. The first episode was the sort of the baby episode, and it's weird to have my son's first birthday, and we celebrated that on March 1st, and uh, the fact that it was documented is still surreal to me, and that process of me not knowing what the fuck was going on about being a dad, it's the same feelings that I know so many fathers have had, and just how sort of insignificant we are in the entire process, but also the reckoning between work work-life balance and trying to be a dad uh, for the first time it was very emotional for me. So to celebrate my son's first birthday yesterday was a monumental goal uh, of mine because I wanted to get to see his doll in Korean culture. There's two big significant moments. One is the Bekil, which is 100 days. 
and the other is the dolchanchi and uh, that is like the more elaborate of the two and a lot of people i feel confused the bekiel with the dol but yesterday was the dol we invited um some small group of friends but mostly my family to come up and Hugo got dressed in a hanbok which is the traditional korean clothing like it's what you wear for special occasions but Big shout out to my wife, Grace, for helping organize the whole thing, especially with my side of the family, because I have so many brothers and sisters and cousins and nieces. But it's a big deal in Korean culture because whether people realize it or not, Korean culture has been defined by its neighbors and it's, it's really turbulent, tragic history, basically been colonized, enslaved, or worn torn for most of its uh, history from China and Japan. And... A lot of kids historically never made it past 100 days. And if you made it to a year, it was a signifier that you were going to make it. So it's a huge moment in Korean culture. I joked yesterday that it's sort of like a bar mitzvah for Koreans, except that it happens at one year of age. And the big thing about the dole, besides your child getting dressed up in a hanbok, is there's an elaborate array of foods and you know symbols, which I don't know the meaning of everyone, and I need to study this. Because there's a bunch of stuff there, a lot of Chinese characters, but there's three things that are always there. And I think, I don't know all, there were like jujubes and there were nuts and other things that I don't know the symbolic explanation of. But one of the big things about the dole is samshin, which are the three foods that take care of you, that give you prosperity and longevity. And those are rice, rice cakes, and miyoguk. Miyoguk being the seaweed soup, rice cakes. So you see that as a cake, literally a tiered cake with different colors. I don't find it to be delicious, but it's beautiful and it's very symbolic of sort of, um, you know, life. Like rice in Asia and many parts of the world, if you're a rice culture, it is life and and it's so important. And then just plain rice itself. And there are a few other things, but that was there. And uh, I just thought it was beautiful. I was so, I never thought in my wildest dreams I would have been able to be part of that. And, um, you know, if you have a Korean friend and they have had a uh, a newborn, send them best wishes on the 100 days. And the first birthday is significant for everyone, obviously. But in Korean culture, it is especially important. And um, man, it's amazing. I think being a dad has been the best thing ever in my life. And uh, I would do anything for my son. But to, to celebrate that with my family and uh, to do this is wild to me. It's still wild to me that he's one year old and you're always afraid that you're going to do something terrible as a parent, but uh, you have to remember that kids have been born and, and raised in much more difficult times. So wanted to give you a brief understanding of the doll, Hugo's one-year birthday, that sort of ties into the first episode of Ugly Delicious, the kids' menu. Um, wanted to talk one other thing. I get asked a lot about my kitchen equipment that I cook at home, and I'm going to tell everyone the pan that I cook the most in, that's not for, you know, frying eggs or, or braising, whether it's a Great Jones or a Lake Creuset or an all-clad. Um, <laughs> my mother-in-law has been spending a lot of time with us. And so she's bringing a lot of the culinary tools that she uses to our apartment. And uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it anymore. I use some weird things now. And the biggest thing I use is a Teflon wok. I think it has become my most indispensable kitchen equipment. I cook everything in there these days from fried rice to eggs. 
I love it. And it's something that as a professional cook, I would never have used because I think it just looks silly. It's Teflon. It's all these things that I should hate, but it's incredibly useful and it's so easy to clean. <laughs> I feel like I'm Ron Papella in one of these fucking things. I don't have any stake in this business. I hope to. I love using a Teflon wok so much that I want to fucking make one and sell one because it's so good. It's like a happy wok. It's from Korea. And I think every Korean household has one. And I've been such a fucking snob about using it. I've never used one. I know my mom has a couple of them. And finally, I used it like this morning before I got here to do this podcast. I made a chicken soup in a normal pot, but I, I cooked eggs in the happy wok. And then I boiled... <laughs> I boiled noodles in it too. It's just like something that I always have. I'm using everything. I'm using Lakers, Great Jones, all clad. I have the nabes, but still the one fucking tool that I use the most. And there's now all these Korean tools in, in my home kitchen is the happy walk. And I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd cook with a Teflon walk. I'm not embarrassed anymore. I'm, not, I'm coming out. I'm telling the world that my favorite piece of equipment right now is a Teflon wok made in Korea. And uh, if anyone out there knows how to make it, let me know because I want to start making these things because I think I can make it just a little bit better. That being said, this gets us to our podcast with Jerry Saltz. If you haven't listened to my podcast with Jerry Saltz, go back and listen to it. It's by far one of our most requested, most emailed, most DM'd podcasts we've ever done. Um, one of our most listened to podcasts as well. Because I had never met Jerry before. Art as a subject is something I was trying to learn more about and still trying to learn more about. But I have a real connection with him and what he says and what he writes about in his reviews and just general cultural commentary about art, I just think are really on topic and on point. And I learn a lot from them. He has recently just published a book based on his very well-received viral, dare I say, I think it is a viral essay that was published in New York Magazine, How to Be an Artist, 33 Rules of How to Be an Artist. He's published a book called How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. And uh, it goes a little bit deeper, not a little bit, deeper than the, the 33 rules that you can see online. I think it's a great book to have. I flipped through it and I've been flipping through it the past couple of weeks because uh, sometimes it makes me laugh, but there's a lot of moments creatively that I try to sort of want to get some you know, not just sympathy or commiserated misery, but to know that whatever I'm thinking about has been thought about by someone else and not just Jerry, but a variety of creative people. So it's a real important book to me. Jerry's an important figure in my life now. And when we thought about having a guest for the 100th episode, we made a short list. And on that list, at the top of that list was Jerry Saltz. Because I think that conversation I had with him represents the very best of what this podcast can be. So, you know, I think we rehashed some things from the previous podcast we did, but we we entered some new things uh, about the role of a critic and the struggles of being an artist or someone that's creating anything. I think I did say something incredibly stupid. I'd love to sort of rephrase it. I said that Van Gogh was uh, ruthlessly calculating. And uh, I don't mean it like that. I, I just mean that I was surprised having read his biography and still reading his biography. If I just thought everything came as like divine intervention to him, like, you know, from the head of Zeus. But 
I was uh, surprised and in some ways heartened by the fact that someone like Van Gogh, someone we talk about in my po- this podcast with Jerry, was um, way more observant of things and was very knowledgeable about what was going on in the world, particularly in art. And he was studying it so much. And that's what I meant by ruthlessly calculating. So anyway, I, I don't mean to sort of talk endlessly about something, but I can imagine if you listen to this podcast and you think, why the fuck did he say Vengo was ruthlessly calculating? I just wanted to let you know that it wasn't exactly what I meant. I will shut up. And this is my 100th podcast with the Pulitzer Prize winning art critic, Jerry Salt. So, so, how are you? You really got in some really important points to Adam Platt. Thanks. You listened to that podcast. I thought it was your colleague, esteemed colleague. Yeah. uh, A chef speaking back or speaking to a food critic. That needs to happen more. It's very strange. It's never happened as far as I know. What was strange about it for you? It was like breaking the rules. More or less, because that just, you know, we talked about it last podcast, how things are moving at such a pace, rapid pace, that it's hard to keep abreast of everything. And no matter how on top of it you think you are, you're not. Right. And how food is being represented by the media, as great as they are doing, it's sort of impossible. And um, there has to be other avenues. And having the ability to speak to a critic in this day and age, particularly from food, was, uh, I wouldn't say a dream, yeah. but it was something I've always wanted to do, and yeah. I felt like I was over-anxious and excited. But I didn't read the over-anxious. I thought my beautiful, brilliant colleague, Adam Platt, who was great, could have heard you a, a few times where you scored something really important that helped me. I can't remember because, as your listeners know, I've never cooked a meal in my life. I buy pre-made um, chicken breasts at the delicatessen and steam them, one for lunch, one for dinner. So don't hate me, everybody. And But you raised, uh, he talked about some sort of, quote, sushi. And you went, well, you know that's not sushi, right? Right. What was the word? Do it, was, you rem- it was kimbap. And it's not just, I don't know if Adam did it, but in general, yeah, we're in a day and age where it's really hard to keep abreast again of all the food trends and what's happening around the globe and food, you know, identity from certain parts of the world. And the history of Japan and Korea is, you know, a very fraught. tenuous, fraught one. Yeah. And one of the things that people assume that is Korean or Japanese is kimbap, which is essentially very similar. It's wrapped in seaweed with rice and delicious ingredients. And you can't call it kimbap. I mean, you, excuse me, you can't call kimbap sushi. Right. And there's other things Why that you see. Why not? Because it's not. It's like is calling it, Wisconsin cheddar French blue cheese. And is it worse than that? My sense is right under the surface is what you were saying is, dude, it would be, I'm Estonian. My, my, I'm Jerry Saltz is Estonian. I'm a first-generation American. As much as I'm being driven insane 
by everything happening. I still am the American dream. My parents escaped Stalin. I got born here. I'm an anchor baby. I have no papers. Please don't arrest me. Um, (laughs) What I really think you were saying is, dude, you are robbing the Korean heritage again and giving it to Japan. Was there a grain of truth to that? Yes, but I know it's unintentional. And it's not just Adam. I don't know if it it was Adam, but I'll give you another example. Like Korean dengjang, which is very similar to miso. And these are very, I wouldn't say small things, but for a long time in the food world, they were relatively insignificant because you could just blanket statement, oh, that's miso. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually very different ways to make something that's a fermented soybean product. You can't just call it miso. Maybe 25 years ago. Okay, I understand as we're beginning to understand Asian food, but not in 2020. That was brilliant. And what you're really saying, what I think went unsaid and that critics like moi really better start listening up on because I've seen older critics like me not listening, which is uh, terms, expressions, attitudes that you held only in 1989 or the year 2000, a lot of those or a few can be insulting. And there, in my world, in the art world, if, if I had said to um, a Hispanic artist that said, well, that's Quetzalcoatl, and I'd go, eh, you know, Aztec, Mayan, South Peruvian, which... I don't know if Adam was doing that because he is a genius and he should get a MacArthur. So should you. I I could, I don't need one. And um, I think it's time to shut up and listen a little. And I thought that was brilliant in your criticism. And that's really what I'm trying to also bring to mind, kind of bring halfway, come halfway to the artist, but keep my critical, you know, um, terribleness and annoyingness too, probably. But again, we, we've spoken about this over a meal and such with your, your you agree, your better half, Roberta Smith of the Absolutely New York Times. Absolutely better. Um, you can't get away as an art critic and not know everything. If you make a mistake, and yeah. we all make mistakes, but yeah. if you make something like mistaking Aztec for Mayan, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. It is. And I think that should be happening. It's time to have it happen. And I think you leading the charge from the other side around food is great. Now, I know that nobody likes to get a bad review. I don't. And I get so many (laughs) every day on Twitter. They're tearing me new ones. And it hurts. But I do try to listen and shut up a little and learn. And I think that's what I really liked about some of the podcasts, Mm. particularly that one. And what about, I still think that your point with Platt was that restaurant critics have more power than Platt was um, granting. Yes. That they not can close one overnight, like Broadway theater. It used to be that way. But they still can hurt you bad. 100%. Now... That doesn't mean we shouldn't, all criticism is subjective. We know this. And you accept that, I accept that, but um, like you just said, criticism is changing, like art is changing. And I would say for the better, I would also say that as 85% of the art made in the Renaissance was bad, 
We just never see it. A minimum estimate is 85% of the chefs, 85% of the artists, 85% of the criticism in all of our fields is no good. And, you know, if you've read anything or heard Pete Wells speak or any other serious critic or even Adam Platt, they'll say they eat more bad meals than good meals because they want to find that new thing. Yes. And they just choose not to write about it. Most of the food is actually sort of bad. Right. If I was a critic, right. you know, like that would be tough, I think. Well, I'm, I'm with you and I think you— I think we learn, I know we learn as much more from bad art as from good. If you're only looking at um, uh, Leonardo, for God's sake, you know, so what? You know what Everest looks like. But let's get down and be like a sports writer and say the Mets played badly this week. The Redskins are in deep trouble for these reasons and those reasons, not just flying off the handle. Let me ask you then, though, can you, would you eviscerate a young artist that is in their formative stages and say, that's bad, and you don't write reviews of them? Um, but it, maybe it could be instructive. No, it's a great rhetorical question. Before my, I became this known, whatever that is, and to each of us, we're invisible. You wake up in the morning going, that's it. It's over. You know, I had to prove it all day again. In any event, uh, because of the wattage of the spotlight I have, I would not do that to a young artist that I didn't like. However, I would do it if, on the other hand, they were like in all the lifestyle magazines right. first on TV, on all the blogs, if all the news, not to their fault, but was about how hot they are, how many sales they're making, then I would want venture in and have at it. And just tell my opinion, not to stop it, because I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, I think critics have to write about what they think. You have to make your art out of yourself. That's what's interesting. Mm. And then, I don't know how to phrase this. Um, Be mean. Well, if you were going to review something and um, you, I've, this is sort of what I've been trying to discuss in these pre-opening diaries. We've had a variety of creatives and artists on, and I want to get the kind of artists that I know personally are trying to do something amazing, right? Like they want to do something epic, and it's not ego-driven. It's ego-driven in a way that that potentially could be on the good side. But it could also be bad. And what scares me is what if it's misunderstood? And would you grade differently someone's art or any creative endeavor if you knew their intention? Right? Uh, that they, they poured themselves into it. And no matter what, it still sort of sucked. But no. you would grade it differently, no? No. I, I'm afraid I wouldn't because we all— you know, somehow have to get through the night. We all, it's a miracle any of us are really here considering how damaged <laughs> almost everybody is on some level. I think it goes without saying that every artist is um, ambitious and is going for it as much as they can, whether they're being lazy about it without admitting it Without or not knowing they're repeating themselves or not knowing that it's great to be influenced. Like if I'm a chef, if I'm influenced by David Chang, that's great. I say, yeah, steal, eat, take it all. 
but then you better make that into your own thing. So I'm not just thinking, eh, this is like redone somebody else. I would be honest about it, hmm. uh, frankly, and I think we all need to be that a little bit more. Everybody, nobody got into being creative for being okay. Right. Like we keep going to artists, to food, to works of art, whatever, sorry to repeat, and going, well, you know, it was okay. Well, and you, we didn't get into that for this. Well, you posted something on Instagram today that was topical, and I want to talk about Van Gogh too, to begin yeah. with, because I've been reading his uh, biography. Um, you said that he was actually well-received yeah. in Paris. Yeah, Vincent Van Gogh is one of the most famous artists who ever lived in his own bloody lifetime. Every artist in Paris, as I wrote in my Instagram post, every artist in Paris knew exactly what this kind of cuckoo Dutch guy who was like always on to the next thing, always showing up at every single thing, like with big ideas. Every artist knew what Van Gogh was doing. They knew his moves. They respected it. When he went south, they knew everything he was doing. Um, okay, so he's pouring himself in to his work, the way you're talking about a young artist. His brother works at the Larry Gagosian Gallery of the world at that time, which means a mega gallery that has locations in London and Paris. His brother, Theo, sends him money all the time. So beautiful Vincent doesn't have to have a job. Good for him. And he shows Vincent's work in the Gagosian galleries. So it's not like he's not showing. It's not like he's not known. He's trading work with others. His exact contemporary, Gauguin, sold exactly three paintings in his life. Van Gogh, at the end of his life, while he's alive, gets the equivalent of a rave review in the New York Times and sells a painting. The guy's in his 30s. He's a kid, basically. Um, he's now sold a painting, two less than Gauguin, one more than Modigliani probably ever sold, and a lot of other artists that are alive right now and well-known. So we have to get rid of these myths about art is all struggle, art is all terror, art is all this romantic thing. Although I'm not sure why you brought it up. Mm. I've just taken off on a, a rage because everybody goes, yes, but I tried so hard. Well, everybody's trying really hard, man. But, in, and it's been... Fascinating to read this book by by the the same authors that wrote the Pollock book that won the Pulitzer mm. as well. It's mm -hmm. been fascinating to to dive deeper in this life. Um, but Van Gogh again, if you demystify certain things, yeah, what is it about us as humans or critics that completely miss art when it was contemporary? Right, and then we say it sucks, and yeah. then later we're like, oh my god, that was genius. That right. is what's really problematic for me because I as a as a chef that is a fan of other chefs and wants food to be just at the cutting edge uh, in a variety of ways I'm seeing again less and less risk taking because I don't think people want to get beaten down and it's also cost too much but also like it just hasn't proven to be that sort of rewarding 
or the the path's not good enough for people to be like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here. There are a lot of layers to your question. Um, yeah, it's financially harder these days, but it was financially mm. hard always. Unless, you know, you hit the lottery or whatever, married well, we're from the right class, the right color, the right country, the right gender. We talk about art not being appreciated in its own lifetime. I might argue that most art that we like, the vast majority, was loved in its lifetime by other artists. Now, we can't help if certain art, food, music, etc., films were never appreciated in their own lifetime. Right now, we're in a huge rediscovery period. Should I get off on this? Uh, no, no. Right now, we're in a huge rediscovery period where every curator is trying to dig up every artist. And you know what? Some of the artists are forgotten for a reason, <laughs> you know? As some of the critics, like me, may be forgotten for a reason. Um, what was I trying to say? Wait, one sec. Uh, art is known by other art artists and makers or whatever in their in its own time. I don't, and that is all I'm really writing about. When I write a book called "How to Be an Artist," I have no advice for how to make money. You and your wife, Roberta, both wrote sort of loving pieces about the, 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 the passing of Matthew Wong, the artist, who was a Chinese-American, committed suicide at the age of 35, Canadian. Yeah, yeah. And you had a, a relationship with him because he got an art because of you in some ways, right? That's and, what he said. Right, which is crazy. <laughs> Insane. And I was thinking about this because his his art to me is beautiful in yeah. ways that I can't really express other than like, it's just beautiful and sad. Um, but how many artists are like Matthew Wong that don't get the, the Jerry Saltz treatment right. or the Roberta Saltz treatment? Yeah. Uh, Smith. Uh, Smith, excuse me. God, I'm, I'm sorry, Jerry Roberta. Smith, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, Roberta. Yeah. Um, and, that's where I'm like, it's sort of bittersweet yes. for me to, to realize that like, man, like you can't control someone's destiny, but at the same time, like I felt so happy that he got the recognition, but how many artists were just like, yeah, missed. I feel for you a lot. I have so many Martin Wongs, Matthew, Matthew Wong, Wong, sorry. Martin Wong was a great artist. Uh, Died of AIDS too young. Uh, uh, so many Matthew Wongs that I know personally, and I try to give them heat from underneath in this way or that. But, you know, you just can only do so much. Just luckily, Matthew Wongs were touched so many people so quickly, and partly because, Dave, is he did something Van Gogh-like. Van Gogh was great, partly because he lets you see color, process, paint, the surface, and the image simultaneously. This was big. You didn't first see the background, and then the cypress tree, and then there's some nice blended paint where he's covering his tracks. Van Gogh, Monet 
does this too. You're seeing everything at once. A lot of that came from the East because Asia never used a central perspective. So things happened on one surface in a flat way. Van Gogh takes that, as all the post-impressionists took it. Matthew Wong, a Chinese-American, instinctively or whatever, took that back and somehow refiltered it and made it brand new because he's doing a lot of daubing too. I don't want to bore people with art they haven't seen, but and then he added some contemporary mysticism to it and just sheer beauty. But yeah, a lot of artists are so lost. You know, it's a miracle either of us were found. Yeah. Yeah. It's Absolutely. so lucky. How, how much, what percent of every day do you spend thinking you're lucky? I'm at least 50 to 60%. All the, I'm, yeah. I think about that all, all the Constantly. time. Constantly. How weird and surreal things are. Shouldn't yeah. be here. Imposter syndrome. Yes. All of that. But what I find so enriching and invigorating talking to you about this is because the podcast that we did uh, last year was probably my favorite podcast that I've ever done. And a lot of people have said that. Yeah, I was so amazed. We said, had, oh my we, God, yeah. this is the best thing. <laughs> I've listened to it more than any other podcast multiple times. I and hear that too. It's great. Yeah. And I do think one of the things that was powerful about that, it was real advice to people right. in the creative world. Right. And I wonder though, if there's got to be correlation because I did, I tried to go down as, as deep a rabbit hole on Matthew's life as possible. Uh, never met him. Uh, but it seems to me maybe Matthew got noticed because he put the work in ways that other people might not. It, there's no guarantee, but if you're going to do something, you should want, you should desire to stack the deck in your favor as much as possible. Raise your percentages That's, as much as possible. David Chang is right, people. You've got to want it. I know you want it, but you have to be obstinate, be willing to put it out there. You have to show up. This guy, Matthew Wong, who I never met, <laughs> turns out was participating all over the place on my idiot Facebook in the early 2000s. He was a or, photographer. Yeah, and really... Really, he was already an artist. Right. And they, I met him, and I didn't know. Some people say he was very high-functioning autistic. I never picked that up from him. In any event, he was all over my Instagram, and I thought it was just some another unknown artist, and I just started posting his work. The thing that, again, I'm just an amateur, someone that's trying to better understand this guy's life and work. We all are. It seems to me Matthew was... Uh, working his ass off to study the works of other people. He was. He was eating alive. I think this is what you're talking yeah. about. You want to eat all the food you can if you're a chef. Taste everything. Steal things. Use it. And how? what would you say to do with the influence? Just think about it. Yeah. Think about it and be like, why would someone make something this way? What were they thinking? Use your imagination to be like, why do they use this color? Why do they use yes. this perspective? And I think just from watching or viewing his painting, I think that's what he was going through, studying all the masters, studying the contemporaries, studying why are they getting this respect? Why are they getting criticized for this and such? It just seems to me he was like just uh, consuming so much art and taking notes as to why 
this person had a point of view that was accepted by other people. David Chang, if I were the fake Wizard of Oz, I would bestow on you the degrees of higher learning about art that the real Wizard of Oz uh, uh, gave to the Scarecrow. I think this is a great definition of what this kid, Matthew Wong, did. He took his influences, interpreted it in his own nature. And he, it wasn't the just the work for him, and I would love your opinion on this. Yeah. I think you're going to agree. It wasn't just making paintings or taking photographs. The work for him was immersing himself in the world of art. Everything. And yes, he was so shy and so horrified, worse than you, worse than me. I haven't gone out to dinner with people in 20 years because I'm too skittish. Nobody knows I'm this bashful. You're probably very skittish, and I wouldn't know. But we all, because we want our work to be out there, put ourselves out. When I was with Matthew Wong, uh, he suddenly would have to jump up, and he left for 15 minutes. And I just sat. You know, I was having breakfast in a hotel. That's where I happened to run into him in Los Angeles after I met him the first time. And I was later told that's what he did. Before we go on, Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. According to ZipRecruiter research, nearly three-quarters of employers say they're finding it difficult to fill open positions. They take bold steps to make those positions appealing. For instance, 68% of employers have raised their wages and 23% have increased their benefits. If you have a difficult role to fill, no matter what your industry is, hire with ZipRecruiter. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 top job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. To try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, back to the show. Something that I've been thinking about a lot, and again, relation to Matthew and the Matthew Wong and creativity and feeling fulfilled in some way. Do you think that we sort of, the idea of being an artist or a creative, a chef, singer, whatever, you think somehow like we've gotten lost in the marketing of the creative process where we, we sell the idea that it will fulfill you? Uh-huh. If, you if you are able to express right. yourself in a meaningful way, that that's it. You've done the impossible. Now be happy. Yeah. Boy, you've really hit on a big subject. Art is not a TED Talk. Art is not corporate um, life coaching. Um, And people, for sure, we can't help but see art, especially through the filters of money. And yet all these artists or lifestyles of the poor and famous— I don't have an answer for those people that would accept that definition. 
of what being a good artist is or any kind of artist, that it's somehow defined by selling your idea and all of that. I'm not against selling your idea. You better represent it as good as you can, as well as you can. Anyway, I don't know that I'm answering because it's a hard question. It's hard because it's so not art. It's almost of another uh, measure of things. It's the way Subway Sandwiches sells a lot of Subway Sandwiches, but that doesn't make them any good. But do you think we're, and again, I'm not trying to project here. I'm sure I am. But the fact that if you're able to express yourself, whether it's commercially successful or not, just the the fact that you're able to express yourself and have this release, I don't know why, but I've fallen under the assumption that like, that's going to make you feel better about yourself. That's going to be one step to being happier. Oh, God, yes. Look at us, two huge losers <laughs> that at least have found a way to do what we think we want to be doing, and that's all I want for people. And I want you to be rich. I want the good, the bad, and the very bad to be rich. But if it doesn't make, doesn't, being successful or not successful, just the act of expressing yourself through yeah. some kind of creative endeavor, right? Like, this gets existential, and I know yeah. it gets weird, so tell me to shut up. But <laughs> how do we then convince people to still do it when there's no happy ending? You know what I mean? Right. That's well, what's fucking driving me crazy. Again, thinking about Matthew Wong, he did his—again, I don't know him, but art didn't save him. Well, as Kafka said, there is hope, just not for us, or no one gets out of here alive. I would say if you can feel that flow, that creativity, the, the time you spend doing what you want, you have gotten out of here alive. You've gotten everything that possibly almost can be gotten out of life other than, you know, love and children. But this is like love and children. It's a love that exists outside of you that's already inside of you. I think it's the expression of courage in the face of that kind of what you're calling existential hopelessness. I think I don't know another way to live. Mm -hmm. Because no one out there listening goes, yeah, I'm going to buckle under and do everything everybody wants and be a cog in the wheel. Um, going back to demystifying yeah. these these so-called geniuses, and you would already, people would say what Van Gogh is probably the most famous. Unknown artist, overlooked artist. Overlooked, but yeah. like he's probably <sighs> on paper the most financially successful dead artist of all time. Right, <laughs> I guess so. That's interesting. Yeah, because Basquiat uh, saw enormous financial success in his life, and Van Gogh saw not financial success. He was fine, but yeah, no, he only sold that one painting. And part of this sort of like genius myth thing, right? Um, in my opinion, and I, 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 I still do it when I think about a chef I admire. It's like, oh, they were just born this way. Even though I tell myself that's bullshit. Yeah. And again, like when I study Matthew and I'm like, this guy worked his ass off by studying other art and really immersing himself. Reading this book is what what has been like so important for me to really think about was that Van Gogh studied art. 
like no one else. Yeah, he's uh, annoyingly uh, maniacal that way. Right. Yeah, he looked at everything. He became everything he looked at. In the right place, right time with his uncle being one of the biggest art dealers and how and the kind of art house he was in where he literally would see every kind of art right. in the world. Right. Like, you got to put yourselves in these positions. That's brilliant because in a way you're saying everyone lives in Van Gogh's childhood house where there's art on the internet every day, all day. Just take a look. Jump in, you big babies. Yeah, I'm not saying that Matthew Wonkin is no. Van Gogh. And that's not what, even no, though there's no, similarities, no, no. but I think they approached it the same way. Matthew did it on computer screens. Right. Van Gogh literally had the equivalent of the internet and art in these art galleries. That's kind of brilliant what uh, David is saying about Van Gogh. I'd never thought of it before. But yeah, it was in his blood, in his bones. He studied and it's it in, so much. And it's in your the listener's blood and bones. You've seen 50,000 images by the time you've listened to this podcast today. You've had twice that many weird ideas. All you have to do is let one of each through. One image, maybe, and one weird idea. Put them together. See what happens. It's not a problem. It's easier not to work. But the only thing that takes this terrible curse of fear away, I'm afraid, is working. You know, Jerry, you got me and your wife reading art biographies. And I wow. never did that before. Wow. And it's been amazing. I yeah. love it. And what what do they all have in common, if anything, other than, yeah, a lot of them might have come from well, some the, money. The one thing I've learned is Back you in the need day. some kind of benefactor yeah. in some way. Some, Not always. Some lucky, lucky, lucky break. Lucky. Yeah. Two, I feel like one of the demystifying things is they're like, oh, that guy was crazy. And then when you think about it, I was like, nah. Everyone's crazy. Yeah. They're just, their life has just been under a microscope, so you can eviscerate it in a certain way. Really good observation. We're all weirdos. Yes. Van Gogh was a fucking weirdo. Oh, he was. <laughs> if you were weirdo. around him, you would be like, God, I got to get away from this guy. I don't know if I'd want to, like, and that's another thing I had to rectify is like, is, was he a good person? Um, a lot of good artists aren't the best people, and that's changing a lot of our view of art history right now. There are many young people that I know that go, I'm over Picasso because he was such a monster to women, and I say to them, it's okay with me. Hmm. I can accept that. I'm Jewish, uh, but I grew up loving Wagner, but I've never attacked anybody in my family that goes, I would never go to Germany or I can't listen to Wagner because I know where they came from. It's hard. It's hard. What, what, do you not like Japan and China because they basically took everything in the world away from Korea? <laughs> I mean, uh, you really want to talk. I mean, this is endless. Um, uh, so that's the issue if they're a good person or not. And what I probably exactly. they're not. And what I love reading about this, again, I've only tackled a couple books, is that they're human. Very. 
They're just human. Every letter they write is, and could you spare some money? Yeah. They are constantly asking for money. It's annoying. <laughs> Same insecurities yeah. as anyone else. Did anybody really like it? Nobody was there last night. I'm alone. That guy, my my best friend doesn't like my work. That woman, that man hates me. <laughs> I I can't schmooze. Yeah. Amen. Sorry. And then That's when I study the like someone like Van Gogh, and again, this is me being amateur, very amateur. It's like, if We're I think about Picasso, amateurs. who's like, would you say is like what we romanticize as a real genius that I, was just born? I hate the term, but yes, in shorthand. And Van Gogh was not. I don't know. I think every in that traditional person. In that traditional way, but. Oh, yeah. The white, male, lone, right. protein, sexualized genius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Van Gogh was like, uh, what did they call those people that can't reproduce nowadays? I don't even know. Oh, God. There's a. a what? Oh, in, incel? Incel. He was a smelly incel. Yeah, he was. That's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, he couldn't, but, you know, I have that vibe, basically. But. What again? When reading about his life, that was—I won't say instrumental, but I'm still processing because he wasn't Picasso like talented in in the traditional way, and he studied art in a fanatical way. Right. He developed a style of painting that was a trial and error that no one else was doing. He took Monet's little d- fuzzy dots. And sharpen them to the point almost of breaking, where you can still sort of get a nice fuzzy all-around thing with Monet. And there's the flowers, and there's the water lilies, and Van Gogh's aggresses right at you. The colors are not mixed like in Monet. So there's a next step. It's almost digitalizing or looking at... um, Tapestries, ancient tapestries do this, where you're seeing every thread well, that's at so once. Or mosaics, uh, some of my favorite art ever. But made. if you do a tapestry, not that I've ever made one, yeah. it would seem to me that is a calculated thing. There's no divine inspiration, like because it has to be geometric in some way, right? And when I now 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 I know what I know about Van Gogh, it seems to me it wasn't necessarily like divine genius. It was ruthless calculation in some way. I, I don't, well, I hadn't thought of that work with him, that word. I think you could be right, but you, we have to then remember that right across the uh, block was a guy from so, the south of France named Paul Cezanne, who was also trying to work out what Monet and those guys had done, but they were so over impressionism. They hated it already. These were the post-impressionists. And then Cezanne takes what Van Gogh does, that full full frontal M&M-like aggression of Van Gogh, and gets it to almost turn into like quirks and quasars, where every single thing is, uh, every single mark, every single color, every single subject, every single space in the painting is starting to flash and move just a little around the way sometimes when you look at somebody and look at a way, there's like a halo around them. Or all that vision you do with your eyes closed, Cezanne speeds it up Hmm. away from Van Gogh and then Picasso and Matisse, who both call 
say he's on a god, say take what he did and see it all from different sides at the same time. And that comes, that's just a little lineage of 10 years of white men, I'm still afraid, but pushing themselves to their, what they wanted to do and to make it new. They wanted something that that came from the past, like you've said, <clears throat> but is filtered through their own nature and that they had courage about it. In, in art today, where we're at, is, mm-hmm. it, is it going backwards? No. What's happened is something good. I don't know if it's happening in the food world. Because it's no longer possible to just have white males from, the Ameri- uh, from America and Europe be, you know, the menu du jour. We're getting art made by everybody from everywhere all at the same time. A lot of crapola is getting through. Lots. I see a lot just because you're from Albania. You're having this show and, you know, yes, like my country, Estonia, you were trounced. And that doesn't make you good, but I'm good. I'm thrilled that right now, we're seeing all of this crap, all the art. And the David of your generation, you will become the next Mies and sort it all out and say, eh, 85% of this was just crapola. While some of it, we're seeing African-American artists take it back. Uh, brown artists, Asian artists. Now, come on. Let's, let's get on with it. You disagree. You're no, no, I, I agree. I, I'm just trying to like move this along because oh, like I'm being I, boring. No, no, no. I just went into virtue signaling. Oh no, <laughs> uh, I meant it. One of the things I'm I, I, you talk about and Shoot. we've talked about already uh, is the idea of suffering. Do you have to suffer to make great work? No, everybody suffers. I've given you a paradox. I'm suffering now. You're suffering. Everybody listening to this is thinking, oh, bros. But, but, yes, there's pain in my work, but there's joy because there's courage and there's love. Bosch painted, I think I talked about this to you before, the horrors of hell. Goya painted Saturn devouring his children. And that became beautiful. It became another idea of beauty. And none of these artists would do it without love. That implies to even Francis Fulcon Bacon and his exploding popes. So that suffering is simultaneously and not paradoxically love. If you're only suffering, meh, get over yourself. We're all suffering here. My mother killed herself. David just said he knows somebody very close to him. He just signaled the same thing. You all heard it earlier. We know suffering. I know people that are very ill. You know people that are ill. You have a child. Your love literally lives outside your body. It must be horrifying every morning. Um, I'm sorry. That's the price. There's this yeah. quote from the Korean artist, uh, yeah. and I wish I had it in Korean because I pr- could pronounce it better. Yun Hyung Kun, you know him? He said, art doesn't come from someone who takes the shortcut. Only by taking the longest and most strenuous path can art send forth its fragrance. 
truth is only realized and expressed through suffering. Is that something you agree with? Because no. that's just very Korean. <laughs> no. Yeah. I don't think Koreans actually are that way. I think they think this way. Watch this. I'm, Jerry's a racist. No. Here's what I really think about Koreans. Think that way. But when I've seen your pottery, man, they turn the stuff out and they make it work. Like you said, make it work. Make it work. It isn't all suffering in the, uh, what he said, the fragrance of bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Artists are looking to risk and to minimize risk. You are looking to make a recipe that works for you, but doesn't take uh, a month or two to cook. And if it takes six months to cook, forget it. I'm sorry. I, I wish you all the luck in the world. If you have a gigantic project in art, say, or music, you're going to write um, uh, an epic 10-part opera, forget it. Just finish the damn thing. I want to say what the other half of Korea says back to that guy. Just make it work. Get it done. Make it work. There's a reason Korea is in the house right now, because so many arcs of culture come out of it and pass through it. It's no dink that you yourself are here and waking people up partly about this. It's weird to be Korean. Never did I think right? it'd be cool to be Korean. It's so crazy. No, it used to be this way for <laughs> yeah. Jews. Now we're, you know, <laughs> But nothing. Koreans are sort of like the Jews of Asia. You're like Jews. Yeah. yeah. They hate you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, they resent you. You ended up with the money. You kind. You have a democracy. You have art. because there's China not, and Japan doesn't love us, but they tolerate us. Exactly. Yeah. You're the comics over there now. No, it's insane. What's the population of South Korea? Do we know? I don't even know. We don't even know. But all the art is coming from there. It's weird. It Music. Is, and it's going to happen more from other countries. You see it from point the compass anywhere but at Europe and America, and you're seeing it. That's what all that other, quote, virtue signaling was trying to say. Uh and the reason, again, again, I'm sure I'm projecting, we're in a world now where we're trying to discover the lost voices that are not white male, right, artists. Yes. And that's happening in the culinary world, too. Yes. And it's sad when you realize, oh, like, you know, Satchel Paige probably was the best baseball player. Incredible. Right? Like, yeah, but yeah. now he has to be segregated as a Negro League player and all that bullshit. And that's yep. not fair. And we need to re reassess a lot of these things. But I think... In some way, in my mind, so we're losing stories, potentially earth-shattering movements because we're magnifying criticism in a way that is killing it. No, because maybe in your world, but very quickly, I would say in my world, criticism isn't making or breaking artists. I would say in the music world, they don't have that much anymore because nobody's making that much money. But um, I don't think it's the critic anymore. I think it's the acceptance from the public of being laughed at. And I know that the idea of being embarrassing, we can say get over it, but I feel like there's more and more people I'm that are just at. like, I can't do it. I'm laughed at and canceled out all the time, okay? So that's inevitable. But I guess I would say each one of us has to help the bandwidth of others. You certainly do that. I do it on my idiot Instagram at Jerry Salt. Please follow me, for God's sake. It's a very entertaining, <laughs> educational Thank feed. you. And I will 
post works, 20, 30, 40 works from unknown chefs, that means artists in my case, whose work I think at least deserves a look. And a handful of them catch on. Can you Most e- of them don't. Can you explain what you were trying to say about David Hockney a couple weeks ago? What was I saying about him? I was trying to understand that. What the hell was <laughs> I on about? I th- what? What was well, You were it? saying basically, I think you were trying to say that you can't hate him because he's successful. Right. Right? And he got criticized because he made a very populist painting. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is that thing of I hate my own favorite band because they signed with a label. If you only want to do garage rock, go. Just do it. Yeah, Hockney found a way to have his art, his food, his whatever, arc outside the little confines of his world, like Keith Haring, like Francis Bacon, like Basquiat, and painted in a new vernacular. That means it looked brand new, and it was pretty artsy-fartsy, and it did have gay subject matter, for God's sake, and it did look bright and happy and like illustration. But Hockney made that look like food, if you will, uh, art of modern life. And people don't like it because he got too successful. I'm sorry. You know, I guarantee you, even maybe even Jeff Koons, you don't know who he is if you're listening, but every art, most artists are not thinking, oh, great, this is going to make me more money. You're not thinking of that at Hudson Yards at all. You're thinking, hey, that, that was a bad night, man. This didn't come out right. Let's make the most of it. That's what I say. Right? Wow. And Going back to what I really appreciate is that if I think of Jerry Saltz as the art critic, I would assume, and I don't know what this says about me, that you would be part of the course that criticizes David Hockney and criticizes Jeff Koons. But I you did don't for years. But when did that stop? It never has stopped. I, I, I've called Jeff Koons a creating, destroying artist. The first line of my review of him of his last show was. Pretend Jeff Koons is an artist. (laughs) So I think that we all do good and bad all the time. And I'm here as a critic to write that this play on the field was very good for this reason, very specifically, and this one, not so good. They they gave up three home run pitchers in a row because they had their damn signs were being stolen. No, sorry. The Astros and the Red Sox are huge cheaters. And so are the Patriots. No one cares about baseball anymore. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, geezers do. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about the Redskins. Um, <laughs> I do write negative reviews, and it you saying that it seems like I don't. Yes. Uh, like, is telling like me that not, I would never off. assume that. I would never assume that you would defend David Hockney, and you did, and I, that's what I love. And here's another thing: Are you a Hockney dis not liker? No. Here's the thing: Before I'm, I talk to you, I don't even know who David Hockney was. That's cool. Yeah. And now you like some of his work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm only asking some. <laughs> I'd say like 10% of somebody, even Picasso, for God's sake. Matisse, maybe just like all of it and let <laughs> it come whenever it does. Um, just 
Keep your eyes and your mouth and your ears and your fingers open. Pleasure is one of the most important forms of knowledge. My wife, Roberta Smith, says that. It's true. She says the best line. What did she say? She is the best. Humans are just pleasure machines. I was like, that should be a t-shirt, a band name. Pleasure machines. Pleasure machine, baby. Um, Yeah. I say be a freedom machine. She says, be a pleasure machine. I say, amen, and be a freedom machine. How did you marry Roberta? She's too smart for you. Way, way, way too smart. She's a... You know, her first line to me when I started (laughs) writing weekly criticism, I may have said this before, but she started... When I first became the weekly critic at the Village Voice, which was a big wig job at the time, and I was hired for it before I was ready. She read the first few pieces I wrote or so, and she held the paper in her hand, looked across the table, and I thought, man, she's going to love me. She looks at me and goes, if you don't get better, I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought... Damn, <laughs> busted, and I love her so much that I better get better. I better get my ass in gear. Yeah, like everybody, I'm going to have to learn on the job. I actually thought of titling another book, Learning on the Job, because I think that's what we're all doing all the time anyway. All of us get the job that we, that we get before we're supposed to get it. Obama probably even got the job before he really should. And it works out or it doesn't. Before I get into this book and talk, have you talk about it, and I'm very, very excited that it's out in the world, How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. Um, you said recently, whether it's on social media or not, that you dislike most graffiti. Right. Boy, did I take a licking for that. Did you? Wow. What happened there? Well, I wasn't clear enough. What I wrote is like, <laughs> most graffiti is crap. And what I should have written, it was in response to somebody else, and then I let it go, right? And then you don't look up for six hours, and you come back and you go, oh, I see, now they're writing about me on blogs, and it made the newspaper. And what I meant to say is that most graffiti look is generic, the received idea. It's mainly... Uh, people writing their names in the same colors in the same way that everybody has done it. And what I was saying only is that I love graffiti. I do not want it to stop. The New York Post is now on a rant because the trains are being painted again. I say, paint the damn trains, but let's do something a little different. Let's redefine the skill of graffiti a little bit. And yes, I understand it has a lot of social implication, but so does every art. Mm. Graffiti more directly, every art does. Every art is political, out of love, need, hate. Anger is a force. It's a creative force. Love is a force. It's a creative force. So I wrote, most graffiti is crap, and I only meant that most is generic. Don't be generic. Is all I'm saying. Be original. You heard it here first. 
What? Well, I didn't even <laughs> read. I didn't even know that it caused a, a shitstorm. Oh, God. I literally okay. just read that. I was like, oh, God. I'm going to ask Jerry next yeah. time I see him. I had no idea that it I caused a shitstorm. I called racist, sexist, everything. And I wanted to go, no, I'm a fairly nice person. Even my inner life is is not <laughs> Have you gone bad. on record to explain this? Um, I think I probably tried to, but as we all know about social media, and I completely take the blame for this, if you are not clear mm. and people are listening to you, if you're lucky enough, um, that's on you. And so I actually fell on my sword then. I fall on it now. So wow. that was way, way, way too shorthand. And I had a lesson to be learned, and I've learned it. You don't mess around unless you're going to try to be clear. Wow. That's amazing. All critics, give it a shot. If you make a mistake, <laughs> you come back and you go, you know, I've hated David Hockney my whole life, thinking that it's just illustration and goes down too easy. And then you can come back and write about what, why you might have been wrong then, what prejudices might have been in operation, what lack of information you might have brought to it, what lack of empathy, what this, what that. Can I ask you your opinion on this? Yeah. And I promised we were going to get to your book, but— No, um, don't. Forget the book. No. Read it. Please you, buy you it. Just it's said cheap. About, I'll what you sign just, it. What you just said about— uh, Admitting your mistake. Yeah. And one of the things that's happened in the food world, as, as obviously it's been happening in the art world, is you have a lot of critics now that are saying like, God damn it, my favorite restaurant, I should have written about it. Or like there's this whole cuisine and Sorry, I'm starting Charlie. to write about it now. That's on you, critic. You messed up. You messed up. You got to stay awake. I've missed artists. And at a certain point, you better really realize that maybe you're not the right critic for your job. Uh, I sometimes think that these days, I see a lot of work, Dave, that I do not think I quite grasp. Now, instead of going, Ugh, I don't know what the kids are doing these days, which is my first response, or eh, it's not good anymore. That's the second response. The third has to be, what would I like about this? Were I the kind of person that liked it? and really try to see it, not just accept it because it's by, uh, you know, someone from Brazil or is an older Jewish man that was like, had bad life, but try to see the work and then write about what I tried to see. Um, so the answer to your question was, oh yeah, in your world, there should be more critics writing online, yelling at those critics. But there's, I want to say collusion, but it's all like a lot of, yeah, great. Love that article. You're just admitting that you've never written about this whole genre because, you know, for whatever X reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm appreciative that they're at least talking about it in some way. But where critics, and I think we need critics in food, I'm pro-critics. And I think we have great critics right now, but it's a difficult task again because of the massive genre. But we need gatekeepers. We need someone to say, like, I believe this is great for these reasons. But what I think critics have that no one else can do in food is that they can shed light on a cuisine or a chef that people are missing. And when I think about someone, and I'm just going to mention, like, Deborah First of the Boston Globe, she's a great critic. And she mentioned that she, she missed 
a, a rest, one of our favorite restaurants is closing and I, I can't remember what kind of food they were serving, but it was like, you know, not white food. Right. And it's a great article. She sort of laments it, blah, blah, blah. But I was thinking, while well, that's a good article. What we need are critics saying, Hey, these are all the restaurants we've missed. <laughs> these are the, all the genres we've missed. And I don't know why let's not do this again. Yeah, I want to know that. And in my art world, good and bad, gross and oligarch, plutocrat as it is, we are trying to do that. Not well, but we're trying. Mm. And I would love to see every world do that from music to whatever. And will it make you money? No, but there's no money in writing it positive either. So just writing what we did wrong doesn't hurt anybody. I've written about artists I've missed. David Hockney, not the least of them. It doesn't hurt. No, I, I love talking to you. Yeah, I it's, love talking to it's you. The it's best. weird. <laughs> we know nothing about each other. <laughs> so um, the banana at, at the the Freeze Art Fair with the Art Basel, right? You were there. Sold I was for there. like 175 grand or something stupid like something that. Something stupid like that in an edition of three. A banana so, taped to the wall. I think that's, yeah, that's all it was. I now have one on my fridge, incidentally, a fake banana. And everybody hated that. I was in Miami. I forgot to go to the big art fair. I was trying to go to the little ones, see what the other unknowns ones were doing, and another event that I was there to do. <clears throat> Here's why that awful work of art why was it, in is interesting. Years, in 100 years, will people say that was a great piece of work? Here's what the piece did in its own present. It was a bad piece of art that made people talk about what is art. Most bad art only makes you talk about the bad art. And so this idiot banana somehow arced out of that insane, you know, the money filter. It actually, bad piece of art made you talk about the art, the art world, the mechanism, the money, the people who make it, the people who buy it, art fairs. I mean, that's pretty nuts for so a bad that, piece is that of good, art. Is that good art then? Uh, it was bad art that did a good thing. So then it's technically a good piece of art then. Okay. If that's our, one of our definitions, like, it was good. Isn't that how critics probably felt about Duchamp's urinal? Uh, in fact, when Duchamp submitted his urinal to the entire jury of avant-garde artists at the time, I think 1913 in New York, he bought it on Fifth Avenue, Lower Fifth, they rejected it. So is it possible we just don't have the perspective to see like, hey, that's fucking genius. 99% of the time, <laughs> no, <laughs> but one out of every bajillion. Yeah. You're actually missed something. And we all miss things. Excuse me. Every person listening to this podcast missed bands. I missed the talking heads when I was young. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not music. That can't pass. I heard Psycho Killer and I went, no, 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 that's not music. It tells you your taste is starting to ossify and die. When that happens to you in your own field, you are in trouble. 
the artist? It was easy. Well-known Maurit- artist, Maurizio Catalan, who's had uh, many retrospectives, including a great one at the uh, Guggenheim about ten years ago. So he's made good art before. Very good art. And not all of his art is going to be good, but it has this one through line in it that he often can make you talk about or think about what is art. And do other artists, do you know what they felt about the banana on the wall? Did they say, this is great? No. I, I To uniformly, I think what he did is he was able to create a work of art that successfully had only one possible judgment to it. <laughs> which is, it's crapola. And isn't that odd? What, what, what? Except the idiot collectors who bought it, and yet, what would happen if they get to then loan it to a museum? But what if he designed this to be this way? Then He probably technically... did. Is it great, then? I, it, I don't know if it's great or not. All I know is it did something that it probably very much wanted to do. And it worked. I mean, it was on the cover of the, you know, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, you know. And so you know that got their panties in a twist. Isn't this Let me of- say that again. You know that got, you know that got their shorts in a wad. <laughs> you know, uh, is this sort of what Duchamp should have done too? Is like someone pissing in the urinal, right? No, that's- no, Duchamp wasn't stupid. He he knew that the urinal on its own is enough. Catalan, that idiot, knew that the banana alone was enough. And sure enough, a bad artist came along, peeled it off the Miami Gallery uh, Art Fair wall and ate it. <laughs> and the stupid press followed that artist and did press conferences with him. You never saw Catalan appear. Ever. Yeah, you can hate him for getting all that dough. I do. You know, but more power to him. The bad artist tried to contact me to come to his press conference, and I just wrote back, you're a terrible artist. There have been many idiot male artists who have peed in Duchamp's urinal. A couple have tried to break it. One did break it. Uh, some religious maniac spray-painted uh, Chris Ophelia's painting the Holy Virgin Mary, and then that idiot Rudy Giuliani tried to shut down the Brooklyn Museum for it. There's always, the, there are always those people. They are the clown show. They're just in control right now. Now, I know you don't want to promote this book. It's not about promoting, but... What in this book is different than the 33 rules that have been published and widely, widely distributed? Right. I wrote an article called How to Be an Artist. And after the article came out, scores and scores and scores of people like you, that's how we met, came and said, wow, the process you're describing of making and being brave and mounting courage and not being rejected and not being defined by rejection and not being embarrassed and all of those things were akin to their disciplines. Chefs, athletes, scientists, musicians were writing me, people on the street, 
because they recognize my face because I'm like posted on Instagram, would stop and talk to me about how art is made, how they make things. And in a fever dream, I realized these 33 rules, I had already 75 in my head, if not 100. (laughs) And they were very simple things like just finish the damn thing. It was about people's fear of that or many, many things. So I wanted to expand it and just give a little handbook. It's only 125 or so pages with a lot of nice color pictures. Um, It's beautiful. I cannot wait to finish this. Well, thank you. And I want you to use it not like a prayer book and not like a TED Talk, but just at 3.15 in the morning, I think you can read it. I will not help you make more money. I will not help you become a big uh, market share. But I think you're just hearing what I heard from many artists and many other people about what it takes for them to make art. Um, are you doing a big tour? I'm doing a big tour. Have you done a book tour? They're not fun. No, I'm scared. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. They're, they're, no, they sound way cooler than they actually Yeah. Are. And okay. that's no disrespect to the people that are coming. It's just from <laughs> your perspective, it's going to be terrible. Well, I'm going among <laughs> other places. Please, everybody, if you build it, I will come. I will sign books. We will argue about art like I'm doing with David Chang now. We will take selfies together. We will hate each other and then become best friends an hour later, okay? Because that's what life in art or cooking and all this is. I'm coming, I know, to Portland, Oregon, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego. Uh, I'm doing um, uh, Austin, Texas, Chicago, Washington, D.C., if you build it, I will come. I'll give you a hell of a talk. Then you can hate me Where can me people later. find the dates for your tour? Um, that will be on the Riverhead Publishers from Random uh, Penguin Random. Is that wait? Penguin Random House is my. It's Riverhead Publishers, and check in with them at any time. Contact them if you want me to come. Um, we'll have really good arguments together and please buy the book. It's not much money. And, uh, and you're, you're, I'll you're, give you a money back guarantee. If you don't like it, I'll no, 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 no I won't. It, you're no. going to like it. And you're going to, and Jerry salts at uh one word at Instagram yes. and then Twitter. Yeah. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but that that's where your parents follow me. We're going to make this our hundredth episode of our podcast. Oh man. I'm so they asked me, who would you want? Oh. And I, you know, and I was like, I want Jerry. So oh. this is perfect timing because your book and like, we try not to get like the, like mega watt celebrities. Cause I don't think they have anything to say. So I always appreciate oh. you coming on and hopefully uh, you'll come back many, many times. I, I know you're worried about like, what the fuck do I have to say? Yeah. I thought I'm just going to repeat myself and I apologize if I have. I don't think that's true. I think people would want to hear you and read your book as much as possible. I think you and I have an odd destiny that I have not (laughs) figured out what it is yet. Have you? I have no idea. No. Something. We're supposed to do something. Yeah. Yeah. It'll never. All right. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Thank you, David Chang. Well, that was my podcast with Jerry Saltz, number 100. Thank you again for the continued support. 
man, I hope to have Jerry on again and again. He's one of my favorite individuals, and um, we were sort of pressed for time. <laughs> that was a shit show of getting to that the office of New York Magazine. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, <laughs> like literally everything. We had allotted around two and a half hours to talk to Jerry, but I had a hard stop, and but we got to speak to him, and not as long as I'd like, and that is a good thing. The silver lining being working, we're going to get Jerry on again, but um, one of my favorite people to talk to. Go buy his book, How to Be an Artist, and. Again, just to let you guys know, keep on sending those questions in to askdave at majordomamedia.com or give us five stars on iTunes, send in a question, and we'll get to that. Stay tuned next week. Give us five stars or however you rate this podcast. Thank you, guys. 